success, which would include in this instance, pursuing the internal process that we refer to, uh, but only if you meet those requirements. If you clearly don't meet those requirements, it doesn't make any sense even to pursue the internal process. For instance, if you haven't served 50%, if you just entered prison, you don't have any medical conditions and there are no cases in the prison, I wouldn't waste a lot of time with the internal process. Uh, if you meet one or more of the- Right okay. there. Let's just continue right there. You wouldn't waste time trying to lobby through that Bureau of Prisons. Does that mean you would then turn your attention to going to federal court or you would just not do anything? It would depend on how many other factors you have working in your favor. I was about to say, if you have one or more working in your favor, either a medical condition compromising one's immune system, uh, you are of, of an elderly age and or you've served 50% of more of your time, one or more of those conditions, I would pursue both the compassionate release and the 2241 approaches once again because they're filed in two different courts. How about a case like Michael Avenatti, who is, uh, you're familiar with that case? Yes, I am. And Michael Cohn as well. And neither of those people are 60 years old and neither of those people serve 50% of their time. Both of them are going to home confinement. Very interesting. I was very surprised. But so what, so what I would find in that is that if you don't try, nothing happens. If you try, the odds may be 1%, but you're trying. That's, that's true. Yeah, that is very true. And, and so you know, I, I don't know that the, the right answer. I think every answer has to be on an individual basis. But it sure is helpful to know that, that people have a resource like you that they can ask these kinds of questions. And we did receive a question from a, from a young woman who's advocating on behalf of her son. Um, she asked, how, how long would it take you to prepare documents that would help her son or potentially I, help her son? I have prepared a detailed process sheet, which, which uh, involves, a, is basically a, a detailed questionnaire the answers to which provide me with the information in full that I will need to file both a 2241 petition and a compassionate release motion. From the moment I receive that, those answers in full on that process sheet, I can file within one day. Now, that doesn't mean we will because the process is I will send the documents to the client for review and the client ultimately will send in the documents, but the documents would be ready for filing within 24 hours. All of the templates for these have been created. Uh, I've done a number of these cases in the last several weeks, and at this point, what changes the document are the specific answers to the questions that we've created in the process sheet. Well, that's very, that's very helpful. I'm sure that'll be very helpful for, for any listener. And if anybody wants to get a hold of David, I will be very happy to pass along his, his contact information. And, and David, we'd love to just, you know, have an ongoing dialogue with you on matters related to, uh, you know, what your experiences were while going through 11 years in prison. And uh, I want to just thank you for giving us your time this evening. Is there anything you'd thank like to say to the group? 
Well, I'd like to also say to the group that I'd like to be back and also keep you all apprised of developments as I hear them from inside the prisons from my current clients who are reporting to me on a regular basis, particularly on this COVID situation, which is so fluid. Uh, there is a lot of very interesting, I would say, but oftentimes disturbing information I'm getting back from the inmates insofar as the lack of testing for staff in particular. And those staff who are many times asymptomatic are, are likely to be bringing in, in many instances the COVID virus to the inmate population. So that's very, very concerning and it continues on an ongoing basis today. So the name of our group is Prison Professors and David clearly is somebody who's gone through 11 years plus in prison is, is eminently qualified as a prison professor and just want to uh, um, make it clear that, that, that our role is to help people understand what strategies that they can pursue, but at the end of the day, it's their choice on whether to pursue it or not. Um, my experience of going through 26 years in prison was always to be a, a self-advocate and to, to try and get the best possible outcome. David, I, I, I trust that you feel the same way. I do, Michael, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and your listeners this evening. Excellent. So, so his name is David. He's part of the prison professors team. And if you want to connect with David, please let us know. Um, I'm sure that uh, Justin can connect you and uh, you'll, you'll have an opportunity to learn from somebody who's got a, an immense amount of knowledge, both about the dust, because now we're looking at two different guidelines. We're looking at 2S1.1 and 2S1.2 and trying to see if we can group these and base these on an aggregate under Rule D. They are both listed there, but as you will learn later in the broadcast, it doesn't necessarily mean that when, some, when two counts are listed as groupable under Rule D, that you are going to use Rule D for grouping those counts together. However, in the first 10 counts of 2S1.1, if you are applying relevant conduct correctly and you're using your expanded relevant conduct, you know that when you go to the 2S1.1 guideline for the first time, your expanded relevant conduct is going to aggregate the value of the funds laundered. And that is the primary determinant of the offense level under 2S1.1. How much money was laundered during this offense? So when you go there for the first time, you're going to aggregate the total amount of laundered funds that equals 2.5 million. And therefore, you have grouped counts 1 through 10 under Rule D. Now let's take a look at counts 11 through 15, violations of Title 18, Section 1957. This guideline, 2S1.2, also considers the value of the funds laundered. This guideline is also listed as groupable under Rule D. So when you go to 2S1.2 for the first time, you are going to, using your relevant conduct analysis and your expanded relevant conduct, 
you are going to aggregate again the value of the funds that were laundered in counts 11 through 15 for a total of $150,000. Now, because both of these offenses are listed at Rule D, and when you consider relevant conduct, when you are looking at, let's say, 2S1.1 for the first time, the court could make a determination that the 2S1.1 counts, in addition to the 2S1.2 counts, are part of the same course of conduct or common scheme or plan as the offense of conviction, which would allow you to aggregate all of the funds laundered in all 15 counts. So the court could determine that they are part of the same course of conduct or common scheme or plan and the value of the funds from all 15 counts should be added and applied to the guideline that produces the highest offense level, which in this case is 2S1.1. So there we see a different example where you're using two guidelines that aren't the same but are similar, where you can use that to aggregate the conduct under one guideline one time. Now I want to jump in here and make a point off of that point that you just made that just because a guideline is listed at 2D1.1 as being groupable or subject to the expanded relevant conduct doesn't necessarily mean that you can group all of those counts together. What I mean by that is this. What you have to do sometimes is look at and evaluate the, the individual guidelines mm -hmm. and determine what is the characterization of the money involved. Right. For example, if you have two counts of conviction, one being a fraud count at 2F1.1 and the other being a tax count at 2T1.1, you have to examine those guidelines and what is the, the characterization of the money in those guidelines. The loss definition at 2F1.1 is the value of the property taken, damaged, or destroyed. Mm -hmm. Well, the determination for the money or the tax loss at the tax guideline is different. There are any number of formulas that you have to compute in order to determine what the tax loss is. So thinking back to the rule when applying um, or grouping counts pursuant to Rule D, you're going to be applying one guideline one time. Well, in a situation where you have a fraud count and a tax count, how are you going to aggregate the amount of monies involved in both of those counts and then plug that into one guideline? Well, and the simple answer is you're not able to do that because the two loss tables, if you look at those two guidelines, are also different. And so there's no mechanism for applying one guideline one time based on the aggregate amount of monies in, in both of those counts of conviction. On the other hand, um, just because a, uh, an offense, excuse me, is listed as excluded from grouping at Rule D, mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it can't be grouped pursuant to some of the other rules, A, B, or C. So having said that, maybe we should move on with the discussion of some of our other grouping rules. Exactly. 
One thing that we need to point out before we get to grouping under rules A, B, or C is that the operation of these grouping rules differs from the operation of grouping under rule D. We have repeated again and again that when you're grouping multiple counts under rule D, you apply one guideline one time. Well, grouping under rules A pretty complicated pretty fast on you. There's rules and there's exceptions to the rules, but you're always driving to the sentencing table, as we talked before, the criminal history category going one through six, and those little numbers in paren, zero or one, criminal history category one, two or three, and so forth, are criminal history points. They're not necessarily uh, the number of convictions. These are points that are uh, accumulated uh, via Chapter 4 under the criminal history rules. And you get these points based on uh, prior sentences, based on uh, the defendant's status. Also, this idea of recency. You just got out of prison fairly recently and you're sort of, the defendant's sort of back at it again. We're saying you're going to get extra points. The defendant's going to get extra points under this idea of recency. And you'll see some types of offenses that are never counted. For example, foreign sentences, uh, tribal court sentences, uh, court martials, even juvenile status offenses, for example. Now, under the guidelines, juvenile convictions are countable, potentially, but not juvenile status offenses. You know, possession of alcohol by a minor would be an example of a juvenile status offense. And it works like this. You get three points if the sentence is greater than 13 months, two points if it's greater than 60 days or equal to 60 days up to 13 months and one point for all others. And you'll see this time period. So if you have a, a three-pointer, you got a two-year prison sentence, it's a three-pointer, you have a time period. It has to be within 15 years of the sentence you'll see a notation, imposition, or release. What that means, you, you look at when that offense occurred and then count back 15 years. And if that prior sentence occurred within that 15 years, you're going to meet the requirements of that time period. If that prior sentence occurs before that 15-year period and the defendant got a prison sentence, and was released within that 15-year time period, it's also countable. Okay, these time periods are important to keep in mind. So this is for prior offenses committed at 18 or older. These are adult um, prior sentences. And I'm, as I mentioned earlier, you also count sentences that occurred before uh, age 18. That's a little bit different. Here you get you get a three-pointer if uh, only if convicted as an adult and the sentence has to be greater than 13 months and it's the time period is within 15 years of the sentence and position or release. A two-pointer for greater or equal to 60 days up to 13 months. You have a time period there within five years.
and a one-pointer for all others. Now, there's some other important determinations you sort of have to be mindful of as you do the criminal history rules, and we can't point them all out for you, but the key ones, especially for you new folks, the key ones to be looking at is the relationship of prior sentences and uh, relevant conduct. Under 41.2A1, it says the term prior sentence means any sentence previously imposed upon adjudication of guilt for conduct not part of the instant offense. If you had a drug case, for example, where you had relevant conduct from a prior sentence being included in, in the current offense conduct, okay, you're going to include that in the offense and not count it as prior as a prior sentence. It gets a little complicated, but you know, on that point, but the basic rule is if it's part of the instant offense, if you pulled that conduct out of a state sentence and put it into the the current offense to do the guideline calculation, you're going to include it um, as, uh, you're not going to include it as a, a prior uh, sentence. The other point is uh, related prior cases. Related cases are treated as one sentence for purpose of the criminal history calculation. On page 293 of the guidelines manual, 41.2A2 says prior sentences imposed in unrelated cases are to be counted separately and prior sentences imposed in related cases are uh, treated as one sentence, one sentence for purposes of uh, 41.1. If, if a defendant comes in for a, in a prior sentence and there's two or three cases all sentenced on the same day, for example, they, they could be sort of grouped together, you know, into one sentence and, and have one set of criminal uh, history points for that uh, prior sentence. So you want to be mindful to take a look at related cases. The other point you want to be mindful of are prior revocations of supervision, sort of like the question, well, how do, how do the guidelines treat a, a prior sentence where there was also a, a probation sentence where then the probation... How to raise your credit score by 200 points. Did you know that at one point I had a 558 credit score and in just a matter of weeks I had it over 770? Yes. I literally got my credit score increased by over 200 points and now it's over 800. I'm going to share with you exactly what I did and how you can do it too. Let's go. Noel. Yeah, she can fix that. You gotta get it done. No, you need to do it better. Well, she can fix that. Yeah, she can fix that. Investment to get back. Trying to get a big step. She can fix that. Let's fix that. So when we are talking about credit, we are talking about personal credit scores. Many of you guys may be aware that there are three credit bureaus that report personal credit. You have Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian. 
those three credit bureaus will report all of the trade lines for all of the debts that you've taken out. For example, if you have student loans, if you have credit cards, if you have a car loan, if you have a mortgage, all of those different things will report on your credit report as a trade line. They'll report when you open the account, how much you owe them, what the payments are, how well you pay them, and basically all of the information regarding that account. You also want a mix of different accounts. You don't want all credit cards because those are considered revolving accounts. You also don't want just a car loan or a couple car loans because those are installment accounts. You really want a nice mix of the different types of accounts that exist and you want to make sure that you are paying everybody on time. Those are the main things when it comes to personal credit. So let me get into how you increase that score. So step one, the first thing that you want to do when we're talking about increasing your personal credit scores, you need to know what your credit score is. Now, many times I know you've heard that you can get your credit report absolutely free. You can go to sites like annualcreditreport.com and get a free copy of your credit report annually. However, you will not get your real credit score by getting that free report. You're going to have to pay a little bit of money to actually see what your FICO score is. I'm going to give you a link below to a company called myfico.com. I have found that they are an excellent resource for pulling my credit, pulling my students and my other clients' credits, and it's very accurate to what their real FICO scores are. I'm telling you a secret, but I really found that Credit Karma and a couple of the other ones, their scores are not necessarily as accurate as my FICO has been into what some of the lenders are seeing. So if you want to get your credit score and you want to get your credit score up, you got to know where you start. So go ahead and pull that credit report and pay a little bit of money to find out what your credit score is so that we can go from there. So when it comes to personal credit, there is a major problem that many people have already found. And this is one of the things that I found. As I started using a lot of my credit cards, my credit score started to go way down. But I needed to use my personal credit in order to build my business. So I'll take you back. Many of you guys know that I started investing in real estate around 2002, 2003, and I was a complete disaster. I ended up losing everything and ended up back in my parents' basement with multiple foreclosures and bad credit. I was a disaster. But while I was in my parents' basement, I learned something called wholesaling. I learned how to find people with property problems and I learned how to get those properties under contract and then flip those contracts to other investors for a fee. I literally started making five and $10,000 per deal and I was able to get myself out of my parents' basement. The problem is I still kind of had bad credit. I would pay off some of my debts and I started paying down things and trying to get myself back into position but I still had a very low credit score because of all of the foreclosures and the bankruptcies that were on my credit report. So when I was looking to increase my credit score, I had to get creative. One of the things that I did was I got someone to sponsor me. 
So many of you guys know that you can find someone to put you as an authorized user on their credit cards. I did this and my credit score increased by over a hundred points. I literally was able to ask my dad if he would put me on some of his credit cards. I knew he had very good credit, but I knew he wasn't going to like co-sign for me or anything like that. So I simply asked if he could put me on his credit cards as an authorized user, especially credit cards that had no balance and a very high credit limit. For example, he had an American Express that had like an $8,000 limit or something like that and he didn't carry a balance on it, meaning he never really used the card and he had had that card for like seven or eight years. So when he added me to that account, they started reporting that on my personal credit report as an authorized user and my credit score increased. He did that on about five or six of his credit cards and that was how I was able to get my credit score up 100 points. So that's how you get your first 100 points. You need to find a sponsor. You need to find someone with very good personal credit and everything out so you don't have no problems. You get yourself a W-2 at the end of the year. You want that, trust me. <laughs> Don't be like me in the past where I learned from that mistake, okay? Now, you have to pay yourself a reasonable salary. What is a reasonable salary? Well, if you look up on the IRS rules, they have, cert they have certain rules around what a reasonable salary is. It can be based upon expertise, how much money the business generates, um, uh, the the economy where you're low it's a lot of things that are involved in this okay when it comes to reasonable salary that's why you want to talk to a um a legal or a, a financial professional to be able to discuss what a reasonable salary is based off your business i'm just giving you an example here now the example i'm going to give you is i'm going to say out of this one hundred thousand dollars in net I only want, I want 50% of that to, to be paid out as a reasonable salary to me. So I'm going to take a salary of 50,000 and I'm going to have the other 50,000 being paid out as a distribution to me. The distribution is still going to come to me. I just want it to be done differently. And I'll, I'll talk about why. The reason why is because on your reasonable salary of $50,000, you have to pay self-employment tax on that reasonable salary, okay? So, now that I'm only taking a salary of 50,000, my self-employment tax, that 15.3%, instead of it being $15,300 that I'm paying on the whole, on the entire 100K, I'm now only paying $7,650 in self-employment tax because my salary is only $50,000. You get it? 50,000, 15.3%, $7,650 in self-employment tax instead of 15,300 because the entire 100 grand, I'm breaking it up into reasonable salary. Now, what happens to that other $50,000 in net? I'm paying it to me as a distribution. That's one of the advantages of having an S-Corp. You can pay a distribution to yourself. That distribution that you pay to yourself, there is no self-employment tax on the distribution. So now that there's no self-employment tax on the 50, on the distribution, 
I'm getting the 50,000 bypassing that 15.3% in tax. I still have to pay, of course, the federal, the state, local, and et cetera taxes on that 50,000. I'm bypassing that 15.3% though that becomes expensive to me over time as I start to make more money. So now, no, uh, no self-employment tax on that other 50,000, zero dollars in SC tax. So now I only had to pay $7,650 because I distributed it out. Now, I know what you're probably saying to yourself. Well, Don, why don't I, if I can bypass the self-employment tax of the 15.3%, why don't I just pay out my entire amount as a distribution? I know you're probably thinking that as an entrepreneur because look, I would think the same thing. Hmm, 15.3, I've paid out as the distribution. Trust and believe me, the IRS keeps a very close eye on that. And that's why they say reasonable salary. Because if you start paying, if you try to abuse this rule, and out of this 100000 you say, you know what, I'm only going to take a reasonable salary of $10,000 of $10, or 10% of this, and the other 90% is going to be a distribution, I can guarantee you're going to get flagged. Almost guaranteed. You don't abuse this here, right? So I say 50-50, there's others online that say 60-40, right? Some people, it depends, talk to, your, talk to a professional, right? But you wanna make sure that it's a reasonable salary. I'm going 50-50 and I'm being modest here, okay? Don't abuse this rule. They put this in place for a reason because they know people are gonna to try to bypass and pay out an entire distribution of themselves to bypass the 15.3% in tax. Right. So that's the reason why, as an entrepreneur, don't try to get don't try to do any funny business here. Right. 50 50 percent goes reasonable. The other 50 percent goes distribution. Cool. I'm able to bypass. Now, if we talk about it from a savings perspective now, remember, between my fifteen thousand three hundred dollars that I'm paying in self-employment tax on this entire one hundred K plus that twenty five percent that I'm paying in federal and state taxes. I'm paying about $36,000 over here as an LLC that's taxed as a, as a sole prop. But now, since I'm an S-Corp, I'm only paying $7,650 in self-employment tax, and I'm bypassing the self-employment on that other $50,000. And I still got to pay my federal and state taxes, right, which is still going to be $20,000 over here. Same thing. But the difference is now, instead of me paying $36,000, I'm actually paying about $28,000 in taxes on this side. So now that I'm only paying 28 on this side, and I'm gonna write this down. Now that I'm only paying 28 on this side, instead of actually paying 36 on this. One defense to sale of a drug would be entrapment. And that would be if the police or law enforcement agents induce someone who otherwise was not predisposed to engage in a transaction to do so. An example of entrapment in a, in a sale of drugs scenario would be uh, medical marijuana. Uh, we've seen here in Las Vegas where law enforcement operatives will contact medical marijuana dispensary providers in California and offer them a price for medical marijuana 
that's far greater than what they could get in California. And then they in turn come here, deliver marijuana to the state of Nevada, and they get arrested for sale of marijuana. That would be a scenario where we might have a good argument that a person who otherwise was not predisposed to engage in a sale was induced or entrapped by the price that local law enforcement was willing to pay. Another defense to the sale of narcotics is that you were not the seller. We often come across situations where someone may be a drug user and they're in an area where drugs are being sold, but the prosecution is unable to establish beyond a reasonable doubt that our client was the one actually doing the selling of the drugs. If you were merely present, that is not enough to find you liable for this charge. They just don't. They're laborers, and we're going to cash some of their checks. And he goes, okay, that makes sense. Leaves, comes back. Finally comes back, and I said, hey, what's going on? You know, and he says, listen, he said, uh, I just, we're just doing a series of checks on, to verify things. And I go, okay. And he says, uh, I said, well, what are you doing? He goes, well, we're trying. He said, we, it turns out that this check was issued uh, by, on, a, on a house owned by a Michael Shanahan. And I was like, right, right. And he goes, he said, right, so we're just trying to verify uh, that Michael Shanahan issued the check. That's all. Well, there's a real Michael Shanahan. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> well, that's not good. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. So he leaves. Becky calls. What's going on? They're trying to call Michael Shanahan. She's like, get out of the bank. And I'm like, I can't. This guy's got my shit. I leave the bank for sure. They're calling the cops. I have to wait. Hang up the phone. A minute later, my phone rings. I look at it. I don't recognize the number. I pick it up and I go, hello. And there's a woman like, hi, this is Kimberly from SunTrust Bank. Is this Michael Shanahan? I'm like, yes, it is. And she goes, hi, uh, we have someone here at the bank trying to cash a cashier's check uh, that was drawn on your, your, on your, uh, from the title company. And I'm like, okay. And they said, uh, what was, do you, you know, who's the, how much was the amount for? I said, yeah, that was Scott Cugno. It was 30, about $29,000 even, I think. And she says, that's right, Mr. Thank you very much, Mr. Shannon. I said, hey, how did you get my number? Because if you called information, you would have got his real number. And, and I go, how'd you get my number? Oh, we called the title company. They looked on the application that I had filled out, and I'd used the cell number. And they said, we just got it off of there. I hope it's okay. No problem. No problem. Okay, thank you. Boom. Hang up the phone. Five minutes later, still, the guy comes out with some woman, counts out the money to me, gives me the money. I stand up, and he says, Mr. Cugno, I would like to... Um, say that I feel very uncomfortable about this transaction. And I said, well, what is it exactly? And he goes, you know, I can't put my finger on it. And I said, well, I'm, it'll come to you. <laughs> and I walk off. Listen, I was terrified. Fucking terrified. I like to think that when the Secret Service showed up, you know, five, six days later, a week later, he realized I was Chris is in New York City. Hey, Chris, how can we help? Hey, Dave, hey, Ken. Uh, great to be on the show. Thanks. How can we help? Yeah, um, 
Um, real quick, I just want to give a shout-out to my girlfriend, Maria Jose. She told me to call in. Um reason I'm calling is because I've got a lot of friends who are buying into cryptocurrency, and, you know, my investments are all in mutual funds like you recommend. Um, and I'm hearing about, you know, Bitcoin, Dog or Dogecoin, and all these other things. And I, I just wanted your thoughts on how to respond when people try to pressure you to invest into this stuff and maybe even get your thoughts on cryptocurrency in general. Okay. I wouldn't do it. Why? Because I think it's still very speculative. We've already seen big highs and big lows, and I think it's still rocky. I do think that crypto is coming to stay. I think right now it's a lot of speculation. And until it gets adopted and we start seeing businesses move that way, I'd I'd stay on the sidelines. And it's not a part of our investment strategy at Ramsey Solutions either. So there, there's that, too, which, Dave, you're far more versed in that well, than it, I am. But know, I it's had an, it's had an incredible year. Yeah. People made a lot of money out this year, without yeah. a doubt. No question about that. Um, but they make a lot of money on cocaine, too. Um, <laughs> right. And they make a lot of money on, uh, you know, playing futures. And they make a lot of money at, at the blackjack table. And they make a lot of money betting football. But these are not investment strategies. That's correct. These are these are uh, things that you can jump into or jump out of that are uber unbelievable high risk, mm-hmm. and so the problem is is that people don't perceive the risk in Bitcoin, and it's there. It's 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 a it's, a, it's not a, it's not fully adopted. They made a lot of money this year. Made a lot of money in gold a few years ago too. And I'm telling people not to buy gold, and all the gold bugs are going. Dave Ramsey's an idiot. He doesn't understand. No, Dave Ramsey completely understands. I've lost my butt in a bunch of high-risk investments over the years. I quit doing it. I don't like having to start over. It's too expensive. So if you want to start over, play crap that's high-risk. If you don't want to start over, do what you're doing. But you're not going to convince friends who are making a bunch of money that they're stupid. Just let them be stupid and smile. It's okay. What better... And to connect with somebody who's gonna who embraces the boss culture of be your own boss. Right, right. How'd you, how'd you connect with him? So what I did was, I got on Instagram. Right. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me what made me do it. I don't know. I found a good video of mine talking my talk. I was talking about trust, and I said I'm gonna give a mentorship spot away. And I'm going to take you on a private jet with me to our next meetup. Mm. If you tag Rich Forever as many times as possible. Jeez. Listen, I had 6,600 comments. I had to stop it. I, I got the meeting within 48 hours. Wow. 24 hours, his team contacted me. I met with one of his team members, sat down, and the same thing you said. They had to make sure it wasn't a scam. I said, listen, I don't do anything for nobody. I teach people how to fish. I'm not fishing for you. I'm teaching you how to fish. Your business is up to you what you handle and execute. I just teach you how to fish. Mm -hmm. That's it. I'm I'm just not done for you services. I'm not doing anything for you. Not promise you anything. You're going to come and learn how to work. I'm going to give you my blueprints on how I make money and how I work. Right. 
and then I broke some of them down to him. He said, okay. He left. He called me at, I was on, a, on my Zoom call teaching. He said, yo, Rose said, tomorrow morning, 9.30. Come to the crib. Come to the crib. Was you nervous? <laughs> Extreme. <laughs> right? I feel like a kid, right. but you, it's Rose. Right. It's Ross. Right? Like, in my mind, I, 06 Ross Port of Miami came out. Yeah. You gotta understand, this is like my whole adult life. Ross been that dude. Yeah, so we, I'm going, and, and homie come in the room, right? So they open, they, listen, they open the door for him. And it's like, everybody back up. And Hold on, at his crib? Yes, listen, they pulled, I'm sitting in the room, and they pulled the doors open for him. His tray sat out. His, his 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 amenities is set there. All his brands is laid out. They pulled the door open for me. He walked in with stuff on me, right? And, and we start talking. And as I'm talking, he's looking down. And he started talking to me like he was rapping. What you mean? He like, yo, he like, he was like, yeah. He was like, see, if Rosé get on there. You understand what's gonna happen? Like, you understand what's coming with that? Mm -hmm. He was like, "Is this Ross?" <laughs> <laughs> That's all. All your yo, songs start playing in your head. Yo, like, listen, right here. Yo, and he sit here, and the way he hit it, like, man, it's Rose. Like, then he get it, he get to going laughing, and we talk. <laughs> we had a thirty-minute meeting. We lasted an hour and a half. So now he's slapping the table, he's talking to me, breaking stuff down, and I'm listening to him and I'm going, my man, whole persona of everything that I hear on these raps, he's doing it now. Mm. Them, huh? Like, he's doing it like, right. and I'm like, yo, this is crazy. I'm sitting uh, here with like my, with one of my idols, like, uh, and I had this meeting and go back and forth. It was just dope, like that's what's up. It was legendary, and, yeah. and, and I, I I know that's just the start. And I I know I know you got a busy day, man. So um, yeah. I I don't, I don't want to keep you too long, but um, one thank you again. Like I, I mean, I've learned so much, and you just got me like really thinking of a, a, a of other ways I can be smart about money. You know what I mean? Like at least yeah. sparking the conversation of. Like, who thinks to get a $200 car note, wrap that joint, and make $600 a month? Like, the, the principle is you get a liability turned into an asset and have it making you money. Oh. Right? People just don't think like that. You feel me? So I'm thinking, like, okay, where am I slipping? Like, so thank you. That's why we're recession-proof. Like Absolutely. I like to uh, make predictions on the podcast, man. So um, I want to know where you see yourself in the next five to ten years so that we can look back at this five years from today. Okay. And I can say I have the footage of where Marcus said he was going to do this five years ago and look at him. Five to ten. <clears throat> I'm gonna develop a financial literacy app that's gonna be mandatory to put on every cell phone 
on every Apple, either iPhone or Google Android. I'm gonna make a financial literacy app that's gonna be mandatory, like they put stocks on every cell phone. I'm gonna make the financial literacy credit monitoring app that will be on every phone. Mm. John is with us in Philadelphia. Hi, John. Welcome to the Dave Ramsey Show. Hey, Dave. Can you hear me? Sure. What's up? Hey, uh, kind of a simple question for you today. Um, I'm 22. I have no credit. Um, I was wondering if it was good as a beginner to get a small amount of credit, say 300 bucks or so, uh, with unsecured debt for credit worthiness, I guess. So you, you want to be worthy to borrow money and go in debt? Yes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's credit worthiness, right? Okay. Well, I didn't know because my dad always told me that it's an important thing, and then I started yeah. watching your show a couple months back, yeah. and I'm starting to realize, hmm, maybe it's, not, maybe it's not such an important thing, you know? So, But, John, not only you're 22 and you don't have any, why don't you have it? I don't know. I just never started. Well, that's a blessing in disguise, my friend. Yes. All right. That's that's wonderful. Glad to hear that. So here's the thing: the you're right. The culture, including your dad, everybody says you need credit because everybody has been told by the banking industry for 75 years that the best way to become prosperous is borrow to buy the stuff you want. Uh huh. Right. And so it's become culturally accepted that that's the way to go. However, that's a bill of goods sold to us by a villain known as the bank. Uh, Because it built large towers in our skylines, and they all have bank names on them. It didn't build a large tower in your living room, uh, because all your living room money from your dad went to that bank. Mm -hmm. And so the borrower is slave to the lender is a very real thing. And what we have discovered is the shortest, least risk path to wealth is to not have any payments. And then the question always comes up, well, don't I need to get some payments so that I have credit? Why? So that I can get some payments so that I have credit. Why? So that I can get some payments so that I have credit and debt. Why? And so the the point being that um, we tell folks to, um, you know, stay out of debt because it's the shortest path to wealth. That's what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. And you already discovered that watching our videos, right? Yeah. Okay. And I understand it's countercultural, but if you look around the culture, most people are broke. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. And, John, let me let you in on this. Um, I I worked in the industry, the banking world, for about 12 years and didn't understand, really, the FICO score until I joined Dave's team. And the FICO score measures how much debt you have, the type of debt you have, the likelihood that they'll give you more debt, and how you've paid debt. There's a theme there. 
and that it's not a matter of how wealthy you are or how well you're doing. It's how you're doing with debt. So, no, sir, you don't need to bring on any debt in your life. I love the fact that you've avoided it at 22 and want to continue to encourage you to avoid it like the plague. Like the plague. There is nothing positive that's going to come from it. And I promise you, your mailbox is going to start to get some offers. You're going to start to see it and be more aware of it. And I want you to have that mindset ready because as soon as you let your guard down, that's when stupid will creep in. Yeah, stupid will sneak up on you. Yes. I'm a big YouTuber. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey, uh, Prince James, this is from the New York Post. Ran across your Crown TV news show on YouTube. Found it riveting. I want to shout out Crown TV Courts. Shout out to Crown TV. Crown TV Courts. Check out my homie Prince, you know what I'm saying? They cover all high-profile court cases on behalf of the people. Nobody else in the media is covering this case. All the information that's coming out is pretty much coming from Crown TV. I think that it's amazing that a black man is sitting on a platform breaking down the law. That is beautiful. I applaud that, and I think it's dope as well. Yeah, what's popping, y'all? Welcome back to Crown TV Course, brought to you by Crown TV, sponsored by Hoosier Taxman. HoosierTaxman.com. This is a company based out of California, but they service the entire United States. It's tax season, y'all. Don't be like Drizzy. Get your tax affairs in order. All right, y'all. Now, a lot of people have been asking for this video, and we have the ability to make it, so I figured why not? This channel kind of missed the boat on this case because we didn't exist, and because there was nobody covering it, a lot of people either don't know the case exists or those that do don't have the details. So we're going to run through this case real quick and bring everybody up to speed. And we're talking about the federal case for Taxstone. This case was split into two different cases. The gun charge is federal and then the trial that's coming up is state. So we're going to run through this thing and we're going to start with the indictment. First of all, this case started in 2017. The complaint was filed in January. This indictment was filed in February. This case is still very much alive. Now, he's charged with two counts in this indictment. Count one is for being a felon in possession of a firearm, and count two is for the receipt of a firearm in interstate commerce. Here is the breakdown. Now, this is from the plea agreement, and I'm jumping around, but I promise y'all I got this thing laid out. So, for count one, which is the being a felon in possession of a firearm, this has three elements to it. First, that he knowingly possessed a firearm. Second, that the possession of that firearm was in or affecting interstate commerce. This deals with the firearm crossing state lines. And third, that prior to possessing that firearm, he had a felony conviction, thus making him a felon in possession of a firearm. Now count two, which is the receipt of a firearm in interstate commerce, has two elements. First, that the defendant shipped, transported, or received in interstate or foreign commerce a firearm. 
that again deals with the firearm crossing state lines. And second, that he did so with the intent to commit another felony. Now, both of these charges carry a max of 10 years, so he's facing 20 years. He pled out to both of these counts in June of 2017, and he still has not been sentenced. There's been a lot of motions, a lot of arguing, a lot of chicanery going on in this case, so that's why he has not been sentenced yet. This case is still very much alive. Very quickly, I want to run through some details in this case, and then I want to show y'all something that deals with the character of Taxstone. Now, this is the government talking about what they would have produced at trial had Taxstone not taken this plea. It says the government would expect to present evidence including video, DNA evidence, witness testimony, and physical evidence to include a recovered firearm and ballistics showing that the defendant had received the firearm in question from outside of the state prior to May 25, 2016. That the defendant bought the firearm to a venue despite having previously been convicted of a felony where he used that firearm to fire one shot that killed Ronald McFadder and additional shots in the course of a confrontation. From another document, and before this, it talks about him not possessing a weapon at a business. It says he possessed at a crowded concert filled with innocent people. At least four shots, excuse me, Five shots were fired from that weapon, four struck people in this concert venue, wounding three and killing one. I'll get into the evidence in a second. But in addition to the evidence, in the complaint that the defendant possessed a firearm and possessed it at that location, the government will proffer that there's additional evidence which showed the defendant fire at least the initial shots from that weapon, including the fatal shot, which killed McFadder as detailed in the complaint. Second, as to the strength of the evidence, Your Honor, the evidence, especially under current charges, is overwhelming. 